The Janice Daniels Show. Janice Daniels Show. Repeat after me. America is a republic, and there's nothing democratic about the Democrat Party. Let's get our words right, people. She's tough. What part of shall not infringe don't you legislators understand? Read the Constitution. Read the Bill of Rights. Read the stupid so-called laws that you guys sign your names to. Your focus is shameful. She's smart. And besides, what have you legislators done that gives you power over us? Trick the people into electing you? Swearing an oath that you don't seem to understand or follow? She's tenacious. I say bring the Electoral College to the county level for all national elections so Michigan isn't governed by sanctuary jurisdictions like Wayne and Washtenaw counties. She's sassy. Michigan has a big problem. We have too many people who exhibit seditious behavior in elected office and that needs to change. I'm hoping against hope we can change the change. Let's talk about some of this stuff on the Janice Daniels Show. This could be fun. And now, your host, Janice Daniels. Today I'm going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, men. But first, I have to tell you a dream I had. Now, I know Theron plays a promo, and it just aired an hour ago about a dream that he had. But at 6.30 this morning, I woke up, and I just knew that I had to tell you this dream. It started out, I was at home in a business meeting with a couple of guys that I know, and we were all leaving. So I have my truck parked in my driveway um, facing the street. So as I'm driving out of my driveway, I hit the house, and I literally saw the entire side of my house, the vinyl side, or, yeah, vinyl siding, rip off of my house. So it's kind of blown in the wind. But I drive away saying, oh, well, those two guys will fix it. So then all of a sudden, I'm on... Um, Woodward Avenue, heading north, and my my truck breaks down. So then all of a sudden, again, I'm walking north on Woodward Avenue. There's uh, some snow, drifting snow. I'm barefoot, and I'm wheeling a shopping cart down Woodward Avenue. I come to a cross street, a mile road, might have been 10-mile road, probably was because the zoo's right there, and I see this baby elephant, this baby elephant, nine feet tall, Turning on to Woodward heading south, the baby elephant spots me and crosses over to the uh, to where I was, and I put my right hand forward. I'm like holding this baby elephant's face kind of area, and, and, and it continues walking, so I'm stepping backward, and all of a sudden it seemed like that shopping cart that I had turned into a steel pole with like a hook on the end of it. So... I'm walking backwards, holding this baby <laughs> elephant away from me, and I, I very skillfully, with my left hand, took that new pole that I found in my hand and hooked it around a lamp post that just so happened to be there. And so then when the baby animal pushed me backwards, I kind of spun around the pole and started running east. And then my alarm clock went off, and I was so mad that I woke up out of that dream because I was really having a good time. I don't know what the elephant did, and who knows what I might have got myself into after that um, <laughs> little scene ended in my dream. I didn't want to get out of bed, so I was mad about that. I didn't want to drive to Lansing for a meeting that I had at 9 o'clock this morning. I didn't want to then drive to Ann Arbor for this show, even though I love this show and I had a great time at the meeting. And I don't necessarily want to go to Ypsilanti for breakfast, although I adore the people that I'm going to be meeting with. On top of that, 
my back hurts. So I think I'm in a perfect mood to talk about my favorite subject, men. Now, I have to tell you, visually, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, I love men. I really do. Good men, that is. I don't discriminate based on any other criteria than whether uh, you're good or bad, kind of like Santa Claus. But before you get too purient in your thought processes, I like to think that I define love the way Ayn Rand did. And I'll paraphrase her thoughts because I don't know what her exact words, but she said something to the effect that love is the greatest gift that you can give another person in recognition of their character qualities that you admire. So I actually admire men's strength, you know, their pure physical bodily strength. Men are warriors. I feel safer when I'm in a burning building or in a war zone if there's a man around. I even like to have a man around when I can't open a jar or a bottle. You know, they're really helpful in those kinds of situations. I admire men's logic. I th they think concretely. It's rather black and white, except maybe in the arena of love. And I suppose in that arena, I can't figure men out and wouldn't even try to. I admire men's inventiveness. There's no disputing it. Men build empires and they build machines. They always have and they probably always will unless we are incapable of stopping the communist left from destroying everything manly about our men. It's got to stop. I admire men's ability to argue with each other and still be friends. That's not so easy for women to do. I've seen men sit around the table and just call each other the most vilest of names, argue with each other, put each other down, and then walk away in their buddies. When women get in an argument, they're mad at each other for years. And, and, and I also like the fact that men are toasty warm. They're very nice to hug or snuggle with. And they're bigger than us generally, so we can feel like enveloped in this warmth when we're being hugged. So I just generally like men. Now, don't get me wrong. I like women too. We can be princesses. We're natural nurturers. Our strengths are more spiritual, I think. Um, I think that we can be the loving glue that holds things together when the living is easy. Conversely, we can be the icy steel that cuts through your heart when we're not happy. So keep us happy, guys, if you can figure out how. Now, in talking about my favorite subject, men, today, there's a couple of men in particular that I want to talk about. One that I used to love, and now I border on hating, and the other one many of my friends used to hate, and now they love. So which one do you want me to talk about first? I'll decide. I'll make that decision. I'll start with a man who more American patriots love today than ever before, and that is, of course, our President Donald J. Trump. And all I really want to say about President Trump is that he needs to hear from each and every one of us. Sometime during the normal business hours, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, please call the White House. Call next week. Call the week after. Keep calling until November of 2020 when our votes will remind Trump of how much we love him. Again, I want to define love as uh, the greatest gift that you can give another person in recognition of their great character qualities. Now, I called... Um, Trump's, I called the White House yesterday, in fact. I, I wanted to be sure and um, do what I'm asking my audience to do, so I did. Now, I stayed on hold for 17 minutes, and I need you to stay on hold for as long as it takes. Get through to, the, uh, to this nice person that will answer the phone. When this nice lady answered the phone, I simply said to her, 
please tell President Trump that I support his America First agenda. And I want to thank him for all that he's doing. I want to wish him a happy new year in spite of everything that he is having to put up with. Her response was so heartfelt. She just said, well, thank you so much for these words of support. Uh, We really appreciate that. And I'll make sure that he gets this message this afternoon. So I thought that that was wonderful. I really did. So um, I'll give you the White House phone number. Get your crayons and coloring books ready. And remember, I don't care if it takes you 15 times to get through um, to the White House comment line, please keep trying. Remember, Thomas Edison once said, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Now, there's a guy who I'll I always will love Thomas Edison. Um, in fact, I'll add a biography of Thomas Edison to my required reading list once I find the book that I want to add. Maybe I'll even do a show on Thomas Edison. How much boring can I get? Ah, that's not boring. It's good stuff. It's mental meat for the mind. So, again, make that call to President Trump once a week from now until November because he needs to know that we're out here supporting him. Even if we can't make it to the rallies, even if we don't personally have a nationwide microphone uh, to shout out our message of support, just think of what he's putting up with on our behalf. The very least we can do is make a phone call to the White House and tell President Trump you admire his America First agenda. And I'll say it again, Americans Americans don't need to see the tax returns of a billionaire who decided to become a public public servant. Americans need to see the tax returns of public servants who became millionaires after they became public servants. You might want to tell that to President Trump too, and I'm, I might even make a promo about that fact. The phone number to call the White House is 202 202- Four five six one 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 one. That's an easy number. Two o two. Write it down. Four five six one 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 one. Call as many times as it takes to get through. Stay on hold. Expect it might be seventeen twenty minutes before you actually get through. And just say, tell President Trump, I support his America First agenda. And I thank you very much if you will do this from now until November. Now, on to the man that I hate. Well, hate, that's that's too strong of a word. I don't hate anybody. I do hate sin. I hate abuse of power. I hate lies. And I hate socialism because socialism always devolves into anarchy, which always leads to totalitarianism, which leads to a dictatorship. Read your history books, people. The man I'm speaking about, you may already know, is H.G. Wells. Yep. Yep, I've got my research ready, and I'm going for it. Now, to be consistent, I know that Ayn Rand, whose philosophy I really admired, um, was also an adulteress. So I don't appreciate her personal life choices, but I do appreciate her philosophy. I will always love H.G. Wells' fiction work. There are few people on the face of the planet who could spin as amazing a tale as H.G. Wells. I just hate his socialism. And I really question the man that he was. Um, 
I'm not even going to go into the fact that he also was an adulterer and uh, had a quite a steamy life of his own. I'm not even going to go into that. Now, why would I want to study H.G. Wells, this mad scientist type guy who's been dead since 1946, a year before his good buddy Franklin Delano Roosevelt died? Uh, I blame it actually on Glenn Beck. He's the guy who started me down this path that led me to the study of H.G. Wells with his Democrats Hydra, where he talked about the Fabian Socialists, of which H.G. Wells was a member of the Fabian Society for a real short period of time, maybe from 1903 to 1908. Now, if you haven't watched Glenn Beck's series on the Democrats Hydra, then you haven't done your homework and you need to get cracking. You should get a subscription to Blaze TV. And quite frankly, you should cancel your, your, your subscription to cable TV and you should advertise on Wham Radio. I could go on, but, you know, there are alternatives to where you want to spend your money. It makes me crazy every time I hear that uh, a movie opening um, garnered $350 million in the first day. You know, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Put your money where your values are. And I know you value Wham Radio, and I... Know that you value President Trump, and I, and I would think that you would value a conservative television station, and that's what Blaze TV is. So I'll, that's all I'm going to do for that. Also, I give credit to President Trump because he has opened up some doors for Glenn Beck to be able to put his excellent years of investigative work into a compelling picture of the depths of corruption, the corrupting influence of socialism and communism and the abuses of power that are inherent therein. I think it's really important for us to find out how in the world so many Americans became and have become so anti-American. Aside from this illegal invasion of our country that's going on right now that also needs to stop, I also think that we have to look back at some historical figures, and H.G. Wells was one of them. Again, I mentioned in another show an article that I found by Fred Siegel in the cityjournal.org. The article's title was Godfather of American Liberalism. H.G. Wells was the godfather of American liberalism, and that kind of intrigued me. So I wanted to look deeper into H.G. Wells' real history, because, again, I love his fictional work. I always will. Um, uh, so I, but so I want to take a look. I want to start with a look at some of his writings. Now, I mentioned before, again, a book that he wrote in 1896 called The Island of Dr. Moreau. Now, H.G. Wells was born in 1866, so he was 30 years old when he wrote this book, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and that was one year after he wrote The Time Machine which catapulted him into international fame almost overnight. He was an incredible wordsmith with a unique scientific mind. So now, the backstory to all this is, uh, as I think I've mentioned before, when I was in my early teens, I used to ride my bike to the library, and I was drawn to the classics, like fiction works, like Three Musketeers, Anne of Green Gables, Frankenstein, The Count of Monte Cristo, as opposed to reading like the modern girly books about steamy love stories that a lot of women like to read. 
I don't know why. I don't know why. It's just me. But for whatever reason, my young head full of mush was drawn to the works of H.G. Wells, like The Time Machine, The War of the Worlds, The Invisible Man. And I would go right to the W's, seeking out H.G. Wells' books. So again, I found this book, The Island of Dr. Moreau. It shook me to the core when I read it when I was about 12 years old. And I had said that it's about a mad scientist on a deserted island who created what he called beast folk by surgically combining man and beast. But as I reread it a couple of weeks ago, which I did do, um, it wasn't about combining man and beast. It was about surgically transforming animals into some semblance of men and women. These transformed beasts would walk on two legs. They had some rudimentary speech capabilities, and they were ruled by pain and fear. It was very Machiavellian. In fact, H.G. Wells wrote a book called The New Machiavelli. Now, I haven't read that, but I think I might have to. In this book, The Island of Dr. Moreau, these beast folk chanted prohibitions, almost religious-like, around a campfire. These chants were the laws that Dr. Moreau taught them, not to go on all fours, that is the law, are we not men, not to suck up drink, not to eat flesh or fish, not to claw bark of trees, not to chase other men. That is the law, are we not men? So in other words, Dr. Moreau was teaching these beasts to deny or fear their innate animal characteristics. Now, in the end of the story, all the beast folk reverted back to their basic animal instincts. In fact, there was a, a, a hyena swine who was particularly vicious, even his, in his altered semi-man form. And there was a dog man who was particularly loyal to the shipwrecked visitor, whose name was Edward Prendick, who was the witness of and the storyteller about this bizarre island world. I'll tell you, honestly, it creeped me out even in this second reading of it. But, of course, this time I was looking for clues to try to discover how this genius writer devolved into a man who might have been considered to be the godfather of American liberalism. Well, the final chapter of The Island of Dr. Moreau gave me some possible clues. That was called The Man Alone. So now the shipwrecked storyteller... Edward Prendick, well, what kind of name is that, Prendick? Well, Pren, the first syllable of the name, P-R-E-N, means the pitting resistance equivalent number, which is um, according to a number of, <laughs> uh, which was a, the well, excuse me, I'm kind of getting confused because I had to look this up. Obviously, I didn't know what Pren stood for, P-R-E-N, pitting resistance equivalent number. It's a theoretical way of comparing the pitting corrosive resistance of various types of stainless steel. And we all know what the second syllable of the name Prendick means. Oh, forgive me, Representative Dingle, if you're listening to me and I have insulted your sensibilities. I can't help it. I just got to be me. So actually, I read <laughs> that stainless steel wasn't even invented until 1913, but this wouldn't be the first time that H.G. Wells predicted something that would not be commonplace until decades, if not a century later, from the 
seen from the cell splicing and bioengineering to wireless communication, television, laser weapons, atomic bombs. He wrote about variations of all of these things well before they were invented. So back to Edward Prendick in his final chapter, he was able to escape and live to tell about his adventures on the island of Dr. Moreau, uh, of course, to a most disbelieving public. In fact, he stopped even trying to tell the story because most people were convinced that he was insane because the story was so unbelievable. A little bit of self-projection there. Prendick said he had no desire to return to mankind and that his troubles took the strangest form. He could not persuade himself to think that men and women that he met were not beast people, animals half wrought into the outward image of human souls, and that they would soon revert into beasts. And that's a quote from the book. So it kind of looked like H.G. Wells himself felt that way about the men and women who he saw walking the streets of London. In fact, there is so much evidence that H.G. Wells, in fact, despised the very people who he claimed needed to be controlled, and I put controlled in air quotes, by scientists and intellectuals. In another book that he wrote called Anticipations, published in 1901 when he was about 35 years old, Wells strongly called out for methods of birth control to be put into effect by the state in order to control population. Now that kind of reminded me of the time former Representative John Dingell, rest his soul, said after the House passed Obamacare in 2010, and I quote, The harsh fact of the matter is when you're going to pass legislation that will cover 300 American people, he actually meant 300 million American people, in different ways, it takes a long time to do the necessary administrative steps that have to be taken to put the legislation together to control the people. And yeah, abortion is a part of that legislation. So the state controlling the population and controlling the people. Now, I wonder how well John Dingell knew H.G. Wells. Well, the John Dingell that we all know and some of us love and some of us don't love was born in 1926 when Wells was like 60 years old. So it's probably more likely that Dingell's father might have known and been influenced by Wells more. Maybe Representative Debbie Dingle can call in and explain the Dingle family history to us. She seems to have a lot of insights into things. Maybe she could also explain that brand of crony socialism, as Theron calls it, that gave her and her husband such great wealth and privilege while being mere public servants. Can't we all just get along? Let's agree to disagree. Oh, it's so sad what these people are doing to our country. I want to talk about the fact that he wrote a book called The New World Order in 1940. And that was after writing New Worlds for Old in 1908. So he was consistent in his desire for world power and control. He said in The New, the new World Order, To get rid of Hitler and the Nazis will be no more a cure for the world's ills than scraping will heal measles. 
the disease will manifest itself in some new eruption. It is the system of nationalist individualism and uncoordinated enterprise that is the world's disease, and that is the whole system that has to go. You know, it almost seems that Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Barack Obama, they must have all attended the school of world domination featuring the nonfiction works of H.G. Wells. Saul Alinsky probably did, too. We'll talk more about some of his other works. We're going to talk about his brain when we come back. The Janice Daniels Show. Janice Daniels Show. On Wham Talk 1600 and 92.7 FM. Thank you for staying with the Janice Daniels Show. I have to do a little bit of housekeeping because I'm such a wonderful lady rebel nerd, as we all know. Uh, first of all, I want to give you some good advice on the year 2020. This was sent to me by a friend of mine, and it was forwarded from a police department. When you're signing and dating legal documents, don't use just 20 as the year 2020, because if you put 3 slash 3 slash 20, it could be easily modified into 3 slash 3 slash 2017 or 2018. So protect yourself, protect your legal documents, don't abbreviate the year 2020. Make sure you always use those four numbers when you're putting down the date that you're signing a document. So that's good advice, I think. Um, there's also going to be a U.S. Constitution B in Michigan, you know, like um, spelling bees and geography bees. This is going to be a Constitution B. It's going to be in Royal Oak. Um, it is going to be honoring April 19th, 1775, shot heard around the world. It's going to actually be held on April 18th from 9 a.m. till noon. And there's going to be a first place prize of $3,000 and a trip for two to Washington, D.C. Second place prize, $1,000. Third place prize, $500. So this is really a big deal. And in fact, a, a panel of sitting Michigan judges will determine the winner, including the founder of the U.S. Constitution Week, Judge Michael Warren. We hear him on Wham Radio every so often. So I really am excited about this. Again, that's not until April 18th of 2020, so I'll certainly be mentioning that again. Now, I, I, I did mention before the break that I wanted to talk about H.G. Wells' brain. Now, how in the world would I ever know anything about his brain? Well, in his autobiography that he wrote in 1934, he was about 68 years old, in Chapter 1, Section 3, he describes his brain as follows. Not a particularly good one, not worthy of earning a third-class prize, below average, precocious, a poorish instrument of loose inferior mental texture of bad storage, inattentive. He said he rarely found himself to be vivid, but found himself to be slack, not wholly interested, indolent, cold-hearted, readily bored, evasive, indifferent, false and forced. That's, that, that's his own um, definition or, or explanation of who he really was. Now, I know all about uh, being your own worst uh, criti critic, 
Um, I'm I'm probably my own, in fact, no probable about it. I'm my own worst critic, and I think many of us are. Um, but those are some really, really, really serious words that he's using about himself that m- may have been true and wouldn't be revealed in his public comings and goings, even though, again, he was adulterous. He, he, he's just, he, was, he, was, he was a mean person, I think. Uh, in fact, on page 16 of that same autobiography, he says, I must dislike a vast multitude of people, and for most things and people, I don't care a damn. That's what he said. So this is the guy who wanted to politically and socially remake the entire world? This is the guy who not only influenced our American presidents from Teddy Roosevelt Roosevelt all the way through to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but he influenced other world leaders having traveled to Australia, the Far East, and USSR to propagandize for his beliefs. I'm telling you, this guy was not a nice guy, even though, again, I love his work. In fact, um, I happened to... <laughs> watch a movie. In my research this week, I wanted to make sure I explored all the different avenues that I could. So I watched a movie called uh, The Shape of Things to Come that was um, published or produced in uh, 1936. It was based upon his book. uh, Well, the movie was called Things to Come. It was based upon his book called The Shape of Things to Come that was written in 1933. Now, um, I, I read that the book doesn't, or the movie doesn't exactly follow the book 100% because in a review on Goodreads by a guy named John Clute, whoever he is, it says, quote, when a diplomat dies in the 1930s, he leaves behind a book of dream visions he's been experiencing, detailing events that will occur on Earth for the next 200 years. This fictional account, I'm continuing with his quote, of the future proved prescient in many ways, as Wells predicts events such as World War II, the rise of chemical warfare, and climate change. So that's the end of that book review, Um, but uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, H.G. Wells (laughs) was really, really a smart guy in in a mad scientist kind of way. So I want to go through this, this movie the shape of, or, or things to come. It starts out in Christmas of 1940 in a town called Everytown. And there's war posters, like the war is coming, and, and they're kind of juxtapositioned with images of happy human wealth and lovely clothes, lovely homes, beautiful storefronts, lovely families, etc. Um, but then war begins about 10 minutes into the movie. So now there's chaos and mayhem and mass hysteria in the streets. And this guy says from the comfort of his lovely home, looking out the window, why should we surrender life to the brutality of war? We're not afraid. Well, that kind of reminded me of Charles Hamilton, who I never really liked, in Gone with the Wind when he insulted Rhett Butler, who I loved. Charles says, are you hinting that the Yankees can beat us? And Rhett Butler replies, no, I'm not hinting. I'm saying very plainly that the Yankees are better equipped than we. They've got factories, shipyards, coal mines, and a fleet to bottle up our harbors and starve us to death. All we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. 
And so, of course, Charles is insulted. And in return, Charles insults Rhett Butler by mentioning Rhett Butler's bad reputation. But Rhett was right. And the South found out about the brutality of war. Speaking of that movie, Gone with the Wind, that's one of my absolute favorites. I love the opening scene where Scarlett O'Hara, who I adore, is sitting on the porch with her two bows, the Tarleton twins, I think it was, um, and they're talking about war, and she says, Fiddle-dee-dee, war, war, war. This war talk's spoiling all the fun at every party this spring. I get so bored, I could scream. Besides, there isn't going to be any war. Well, how wrong she was, huh? So back to that movie, The Things to Come, based on H.G. Wells' book entitled The Shape of Things to Come. There's all these trucks and tanks and motorcycles, and they're driving through the streets, and those gas masks are handed out to people, which were probably totally ineffective. Remember those gas masks they used to um, promote with the, like, elephant's kind of trunk hanging out the front of it? I don't think that would have helped any of us. But the guns, the, there was these tank guns, and they were actually shooting right from the streets, of every town. So everybody's running around, buildings are crumbling. The entire town, the entire world is demolished. So that was, you know, H.G. Wells' vision to completely remake the world. So 23 minutes into the movie, time elapses from 1945 to 1955 to 1960 to 1966, and the end of the war is near. At that point in the movie, a terrible pestilence called the wandering sickness is plaguing the world because of poverty, famine, and unsafe drinking water. So one guy comes out of the hospital like one of the walking dead in that, you know, in the modern series, and another guy yells out, he's carrying the infection as everybody runs away uh, in the cities in ruin. So a guard kills the walking dead guy. Of course, they were called wanderers in that movie. And, and a doctor watching from a window says, that's how they do pestilence in the dark ages. Imagine that. H.G. Wells' wanderers were no doubt the precursors to the walkers in The Walking Dead. I wonder if Hollywood has anything original anymore. you got to give this guy his due. He truly was something of a prophet, but it seems that he was on the wrong side of the ledger of, li of life's battle between good and evil. At least that's my opinion. Now, if you just joined the Janice Daniels show, we're working our way through the screen adaptation of one of H.G. Wells' books. I, today, I'm doing my study on H.G. Wells. If you didn't hear the beginning of my show, you got to go back and listen to it so you can get the complete picture of this very, to me, very dangerous man of the lunatic left, who I used to love. So go to https colon forward slash forward slash. You always got to put that in a website. And then anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, like you drop on a ship, dot F-M, forward slash, Janice, that's J-A-Nice, dash, Daniels, like my favorite Uncle Jack. So H-T-T-P-S colon forward slash forward slash, anchor dot F-M forward slash, Janice dash Daniels. And if you want me to get a dedicated Janice Daniels show website up and running, I would really appreciate if you'd send your best financial contribution to The Janice Daniels Show, LLC, Post Office Box, 4643, Troy, Michigan, 48099. But now back to that movie, Things to Come. One half of the world's population dies. Now that's another major goal of H.G. Wells, population control. 
So then in the 70s, the 1970, um, the wandering sickness epidemic is over. So a power struggle begins between the boss, who now controls every town, and he's kind of like a shabby aristocrat who might be Wells' hyperbolic representation of imperfect freedom in the form of an English monarchy trying feebly to come out of the ruins of war. And this shabby aristocrat is in a power struggle with a former resident of every town named John Cabal. John Cabal, can you imagine using that word as the last name of the leader of the New World Order. I'm telling you, this guy was brilliant in a very mad scientist sort of way. So this John Cabal apparently leaves town in, or had left town, and now he returns in a plane in a fancy space suit with this crazy outlandish-looking helmet of some sort. And he says, the New Order has begun, and the New Order doesn't approve of independent sovereign states. He says to the boss that the state is your mother and your father and that new world of United Airmen will finish your sovereign state. Now, this is supposed to be a world of lasting progressive peace, you know, the utopia led by scientists and intellectuals. And, and that truly was H.G. Wells' overriding vision of the new world order that he conjured up and influenced as, again, the godfather of American liberalism. I couldn't, at that point, I couldn't help but be reminded of Whitaker Chambers' words on page one of Witness, where he describes the great historical battle between freedom and communism. And, and, and it's kind of worth reading an excerpt to you. In 1937, that's how Whitaker Chambers begins this particular statement. In 1937, which of course was a year after this stupid movie came out, in 1937, I began, like Lazarus, the impossible return. I began to break away from communism and to climb from deep within its underground, where for six years I had been buried, back into the world of free men. And he goes on to say later on that page, by any hard-headed estimate, the world I was leaving looked like the world of life and of the future. Now, that would be kind of the life that John Cabal brings to every town. The state, as your mother and your father, looks like the world of life and of the future that Whitaker Chambers was mentioning. But back to the Whitaker Chambers page one quote, he says, the world I was returning to, and that would be the world of free men, seemed, by contrast, a graveyard. So then on page two, Whitaker Chambers says, I knowingly chose the side of defeat, if only because in the last instance, men must act on what they believe right not on what they believe probable. I really, really love those words. Men must act, that's take action, on what they believe right, not on what they believe left. I mean prob pro probable. So men must act on what they believe right, not on what they believe probable. So then Back to this crazy old movie, Things to Come, it, it, it then fast forwards through decades of industrial growth to the year 2036. This every town is now a high-gloss, futuristic city called the Great White World. Everything's white, the buildings, the machinery, everything. Now, I'm sure there'll be somebody who wants to ban this stupid old movie because it has too much whiteness, but you need to get over it. 
And before you start your campaign of hate to ban things to come, please take a look at Barack Hussein and Michelle Obama's new mansion. That's the $801 million beauty in Washington, D.C. It's decorated all white inside. Such hypocrisy. These traitors, I believe, are traitors to American exceptionalism. Oh, boy. Traitors to American exceptionalism. They're living the American dream. But on whose dime? Who's paying for Obama's large living? You know what? He's one of those so-called public servants who became a millionaire while being a public servant whose tax returns we need to see. Back to the movie. So once again, we see men rebelling against the existing order. There's this group of shabby insurgents marching up the bridge who want freedom again. And there's this invention called the space gun that literally shoots a young couple like a in a bullet-type enclosure into the sky. They're heading for the moon. So the opposition tried unsuccessfully to destroy the space gun, which they see as a symbol of tyranny. They wanted to destroy it before it could be shot off, but they fail. Now, in the end, John Cabal's grandson says, no rest for mankind. It's either to conquer the entire universe or it's nothing. What shall it be? So there's H.G. Wells' worldview, life without God, because he didn't believe in God. In fact, he ridiculed God. Man is the ruler of the universe. The state is your mother and father population control, complete destruction of the world. It's all very anti-American, anti-liberty, and that's the views that H.G. Wells brought to America and to the world, quite frankly, at the turn of the 20th century. So I was watching this movie at about 8.20 in the morning on New Year's Eve day. So when I turned it off, I turned on Glenn Beck on Wham Radio, and I heard Glenn's guest host, Steve Dacey, who I really like, say that the Republicans voted into office in the reddest of states were craven opportunists who were voting like Democrats. Now, on an aside, red is supposedly the color of Republicans all of a sudden, but we know that it was the media that gave the Republicans the color red in the year 2000. And we have yet to rid ourselves of that color that is naturally associated with communism. That's another tool of deception. We have to disassociate the Republican Party from the color red. But, of course, that's probably another pipe dream of mine. So then I listened to Rush Limbaugh, and his guest host says, we are winning. Conservatism is winning. So my head's spinning now. You know, are we being deceived by craven opportunists? Yes. Or are we winning? Yes. I actually believe that we are planting the seeds for success because we have the truth on our side. There's no truth in believing that any one man or any group or cabal can govern without becoming tyrannical because we know that power corrupts unless we follow a constitution like ours. That's why I continue to say that if all of our elected officials followed the blueprint for freedom— our Constitution would be the sword and the shield for liberty that it was intended to be. And it would matter little who was elected into office. 
if they all had to adhere to their oath of office to protect and defend our Constitution against enemies both foreign and domestic. And under this constitutional rule of law, if a legislator gets out of line and tries to impeach a president who has not committed anything near a high crime and misdemeanor, they would be thrown out of office as an enemy of the Constitution and maybe even thrown into jail like the common criminals that they are. It is time that the enemies of America who are elected into office are vetted, revealed, and removed. It is time. Now, I want to go through a couple of the future predictions that H.G. Wells really did come up with. I give all due admiration to this guy. Um, in the island of Dr. Moreau, he, 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 he was very prescient in these, in these animal-human hybrid experiments that was a century before genetic engineering. But the theme of this book and the theme of H.G. Wells' life's worldview was humans playing God by tinkering with nature. He also, in a book he wrote called Men Like Gods, that was in 1923, he invites readers to a utopia that's, again, Earth after thousands of years of progress. And in this alternate reality, the people communicate exclusively with wireless systems that kind of commingle voicemail and email-like properties. Amazing, amazing. Then, of course, we all know about War of the Worlds, where he has this heat ray, that super weapon capable of incinerating people and with a noiseless flash of light. Um, uh, I've got this article that says it would be more than six decades before Theodore Maiman fired up the first operational laser in California's Hughes Research Laboratory on May 16, 1960. So, I mean, the guy was amazing, but there were some predictions that haven't come true. Uh, you know, right now, we haven't been invaded by Martians, at least we don't know if we've been invaded by Martians, but it doesn't seem like we are. Uh, human invisibility is kind of elusive, although I guess scientists are making progress in that direction, and the time machine hasn't been worked out either. And, of course, the perhaps the biggest disappointment to Wells was the failure of his idealized political vision, a world government, which he described in the modern utopia in 1905. Now, I'll tell you, uh, that's, that's, that is about all that I want to say about H.G. Wells. To be honest with you, I've done all the research I'm going to do. Uh, as I say, you can go and get that article called The Godfather of American Liberalism that was written in, I think, 2006 uh, by a guy named Fred Siegel, and, and that gave me some of the insights that I had. I am going to go back and do some more research on Glenn Beck's The Democrat's Hydra because I think that that is a compelling picture, and the more that you and I share this information with each other, the more we're going to be able to do to help save our country. I'm thrilled 
with the progress that I think we are making under President Donald J. Trump and don't listen to the media and what they have to say about our president. I think he's doing the right thing in so many arenas. I don't expect a perfect man. He's not Jesus Christ, but I'll tell you, he, to me, is the best president we have had uh, since George Washington. Um, You know, there's a letter to my boss that's going around online. It says, I've enjoyed working here these past several years. You've paid me very well, given me benefits beyond belief. Uh, I have three to four months off per year, a pension plan that will make my salary till the day I die, and then pay my estate one year salary, death bonus, and continue to pay my spouse my salary with increases until he or she dies. We hear the music. You know what, if you have a kid that happens to be in the local library and is gravitating towards the W section of the fiction area of the library, have them listen to this episode of the Janice Daniels Show. Spread the word. It's Wham! And I'm Janice Daniels.